And I was thinking this week how, um, you know, it seems to be that most people kind of go through the, that phase when they're a kid of, uh, you know, they think that their dad is just awesome. Now, I know not everybody has a relation, relationship with their dad like that, but it seems like, you know, the majority of kids, they, they think, you know, my dad is just the best, and he can't do anything wrong, and he's the strongest, and, and my dad could beat up your dad, you know, that kind of a thing. I, I remember going through that phase when I was a kid. <clears throat> And I have to admit, it's kind of funny being on the other side of it. It's kind of fun, you know, when your kids think that you can do no wrong and they think you're the best and think you're the strongest, but that doesn't last very long. They get wise pretty quick. And I experienced that this last week. I was, uh, excuse me a second. I was over at a friend's house, and uh, we were getting ready to leave, and so we were exiting through the garage, and they have a home gym in their garage, and Eli was already out there. And he was on the exercise bike, and he said, I'm working out. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. I, and so I, I laid down on the bench, and there were some weights already on there. It was like, and it wasn't that much weight. It was like 245s. That was all there was. And I said, Eli, how many times do you think I can put this up? And he says, he looks at me. He said, uh, zero. <laughs> I was like, dude. Was like, he goes, what? He goes, that's a lot of weight. I was like, oh, man. So then I showed him who's boss. But anyways, um, it didn't take very long uh, for kids to, uh, to get wise. But, you know, there's you know, different definitions that we have of what it means to be strong. And sometimes those definitions kind of change over time. You know, we think of physical strength. And sometimes we think of strength in terms of willpower. Sometimes it's uh, mental toughness, you know, the ability to not let things bother you. Sometimes it's physical walls that make us feel safe. You know, maybe a particular, um, you know, our house, you know, is a place that maybe we feel safe. Or, or uh, you know, it could be emotional walls that we put up, things that keep us safe from other people, from them hurting us. So we put up emotional walls that, that make us feel strong. Sometimes it's financial security or job security or home security. But there's a lot of different definitions of strength. But what I want you to think about is as we think about, as we talk about strength, doesn't it seem like most of our, as we think of most of our definitions of strength, doesn't it seem like strength is usually something that comes from the inside? It comes from us. We're typically kind of the source of our strength. Have you noticed that? No matter what the definition of that seems to be something that, that all those things have in common, that they all start with us and what we're able to do. It's our ability and our planning and our drive and our determination and our grit. But yet we're all familiar with failure, aren't we? We're all familiar with that feeling of knowing that our strength wasn't enough. I think we've all failed in some area. And I think that's a familiar feeling to us all. Well, today we're talking about the story of Joshua. Uh, just to kind of bring you up to speed, I know that some of you haven't been here th for the whole series, and I don't know about you, but I've slept since last week and probably forgotten more than I remember about last week, so maybe that's you. So just to bring you up to speed, we talked about Moses. Moses was this guy that God called to lead his people out of Egypt and into the wilderness, not just to lead them out in the wilderness, but to go into the promised land. So you might remember they were on the doorstep of the promised land, getting ready to go into the, the land that God promised, the land flowing with milk and honey, and then what happens? They get scared. They see the people live there in their cities, and they say, no, there's, we don't have a chance. And they're too fearful. They don't trust that God is going to actually take them into the land that he's led them to. And so God says, you know what? If you don't want to go in the promised land, then you're not going into the promised land. So that entire generation was not allowed to enter the promised land, with the exception of two men, Joshua and Caleb. And so what happened is they wandered around the desert for 40 years until everyone from that generation, including Moses, had passed on. 
So only two men from the first generation that had actually left Egypt were still alive. This is a whole new generation of Israelites. And Caleb and Joshua were the two men that were left. So in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, this is what it says. Joshua 1, 1 through 2. It's going to be up on the screen. I always encourage you, if you've got a Bible at home, bring it with you. I don't, I don't know about you. I read my Bible on my cell phone more often than not, so that's what I carry with me. But whatever you read your Bible from, I'd encourage you to bring it every week so you can kind of see it you know, for yourself and have it with you. You can mark it. But Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. So Moses passed away. And Moses had a little bit of a, a rocky start with God's people because, I mean, he goes into Egypt and he says, hey, we're getting out of here. And at first they're like, yeah, let's do it. You know, they were in slavery. But then all of a sudden these bad things start happening to the Egyptians. And so the Egyptians, Pharaoh begins punishing the Hebrews. It makes it, so Moses' arrival into Egypt initially makes things even worse for the Hebrews. And so they really didn't like Moses very much. Uh, but they listened to him for the most part. And then when they left and they went out into the wilderness, they said, Moses, you've led us out in the middle of nowhere. You're just trying to kill us. We'd be better off back in Egypt. So it started off kind of rocky. But eventually Moses becomes kind of this beloved leader. I mean, they finally learned to trust Moses because trusting Moses meant trusting God because God had spoken to Moses. And so he leads them for all these years, and finally he passes away. And even he himself wasn't able to enter the promised land because of his sin. And so they grieved for him for a month. For a month, they just grieve for the loss of Moses. I mean, he had led them. He pleaded to God on their behalf when they messed up, and now he had passed away. So who's going to fill Moses' shoes? I mean, think about all the things that Moses did. It led them out of, uh, out of Egypt. He was there when the seas parted. Of course, God did that, but he was the one that put the staff in the ground and it parted. Who's the one that wa- brought uh, water out of the rock twice and uh, it rained down food from heaven because Moses had spoken to God? I mean, God did all this, but Moses was kind of the go-between. So who exactly is going to fill Moses' shoes now that he's gone? Well, a man named Joshua was a pretty likely candidate. He's introduced in the book of Exodus, and he's also mentioned, I believe, in Leviticus, Leviticus excuse me, and Numbers. And he's described in um, Exodus as Moses' assistant. And you might remember this story, maybe not, but uh, God had given the Ten Commandments to the Israelites verbally. They didn't have the tablets yet, but he had told them, you know, all the Ten Commandments, the first two were, you know, serve God, serve alone, don't make a graven image. Those are the first two. Well, Moses goes up to the mountain for 40 days, And uh, God gives him the stone tablets. And while he's up there, the people get restless. And what do they do? They break the first two commandments. They make a golden calf and they bow down. And so as they're coming down from the mountain, it's actually Joshua that was with Moses that hears the sound of them celebrating and dancing and singing. So Joshua was kind of Moses' right-hand man. He was right there with him, had seen all this stuff happen. Also, there's another story. When Moses told the 12 spies to go spy out the promised land, Only two of them thought that they should take the promised land, and it was Caleb and Joshua. The other ten said, no, we can't do it. They're too big. They're too strong. But Caleb and Joshua, both of them said, let's do this. God said we can do it. Let's take the land. So Joshua was one of those men. So he seems to be the best man for the job. But I want you to understand, when it comes to the book of Joshua, this is where the likelihood ends. 
From here on out, everything that happens in the book of Joshua, I always say that the book of Joshua, the story of Joshua, is a story of unlikelies. Everything that happens is unlikely, is not what you would expect to happen. But really, this story starts long before Joshua. It starts when God created people. And we've talked about this as we're going through the, the story, as we've called it, which is the Bible, just kind of we're going through the Bible, sort of, sort of a survey. And from the very beginning, we talked about this love that God has for people, how he made people and how he loves people, even though we really don't deserve it. And we talked about how his love was illustrated through Abraham. He said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. We, we saw it, how it was manifested in the time of Noah, how God saved people from themselves. The, the earth was self-destructing. Every inclination of man's heart was evil. And so God started over with Noah. We think about how he protected his, his people during the time of Joseph, how he led them away from famine. He brought them out of slavery, and now he's bringing them into a land that he had promised to them. And it kind of reminds me of the garden, doesn't it? God says, hey, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a place to dwell. And, and isn't that what he did in the very beginning in the book of Genesis? He made a garden for Adam and Eve. And then it started to remind me about another passage, passage that we read in the New Testament, where Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. See, God wants to dwell with his people. God has this unlikely love for us, for people. And that love that he has was passed on to the Hebrews. There was nothing really lovable about them. They were slaves. They were wanderers. They were unlikely recipients of God's favor. But what I want you to understand is even though Joshua might seem like a likely candidate to lead God's people, we find that the things that we think would qualify Joshua to be a good leader are not the things that God mentions here. His earthly qualifications are not the reason why God chose Joshua to lead his people. And we see that in Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Joshua 1, 5 through 9. Uh, what we're doing is we're basically talking about the entire book of Joshua today, which it was funny because I was uh, thinking through, I was like, you know, I think we did a sermon series, a whole series on Joshua. And sure enough, I looked it up on my computer, 12 sermons about Joshua, and we're taking care of Joshua today in one sermon. So... See, 12 divided by 6, I mean, it'll be, we'll be here about 6 hours. I hope you brought a sack lunch. Just kidding. Now, this is like the, the express version. We're blowing through this. We're leaving a lot of stuff out, which I, drives me crazy. But anyways, that's why you got to read it on your own, too. Uh, so anyways, where was I? Tangent. Um, okay. Um, Joshua 1, 5 through 9, that's where we're going to go. It says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. This is God talking to Joshua. This is what he's saying to him. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to you. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You hear a common theme in this passage, don't you, if you're paying attention. Be strong 
and courageous. Be strong. That's something we hear over and over and over. So God's people are finally getting ready to go into this promised land. After 40 years, they end up right back where they started. They could have gone into the land, but they were too fearful, didn't have the faith. So 40 years later, they're standing in the same spot, just getting ready to go in the promised land. But the same problem they had 40 years ago hasn't gone away. What was the problem? What kept them out of the promised land the first time? It was fear. They saw the people that were living there, and they say, nope, we don't have a chance. We're not doing that. And God says, okay. Same thing happens 40 years later. They look at the land, and they say, same people are still living there. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's not like they're just going to hand it over to us. There's people living there. And if we're supposed to take that land, that means that we're going to have to go up against these people that they were scared of. So same problem. But fortunately, they do something a little different this time. Now, um, Joshua covers this kind of this chapter, I guess, of the story where they, they take the land, and then what they do is, you might have read the book of Joshua, it's super exciting in the beginning, and then the second half is a little bit kind of dull, because basically what it is, is once they take the land, then he divides up the land. He says, okay, this belongs to you, and this belongs to you, and that's what he does. And so it's a little bit dull, but that's what the whole book of Joshua was talking about. It's the conquest for the promised land, and then them dividing up the land to the different places. But this takes strength, doesn't it? We're talking about like a military operation. Anytime you talk about a military operation, that takes strength of one kind or another. But God doesn't use Joshua because he's strong. He doesn't mention his qualifications and say, well, Joshua, you did this and you did this and you did this and you have this. And he doesn't say any of that. As a matter of fact, as we were reading that passage, what does he say three times in five verses? He says to be strong. If Joshua already was strong, why would God tell him to do something that he was already capable of? Do you know what I'm saying? Why would he command him? Why would he instruct him to do something that he was already capable of doing on his own? Well, that's the whole point. God isn't recruiting Joshua because of his strength. God is saying, it's my strength that is going to pull you through. I mean, can you imagine, like, but the way he says it, he just says, be strong. Can you imagine, let's, say, let's go back to this gym illustration. And let's say you're in the gym, and you decide you're going to start working out, and it's your first day, and you've got this big old muscle man trainer that's helping you out. And he says, all right, lay down on the bench. And he puts 300 pounds on. He says, all right, I want you to bench this. And you're like, uh, I can't. He says, well, just be strong. Be strong. Can you imagine that? You're like, well, you can tell me as much as you want to be strong, but either you have it or you don't at least when the source of strength comes from you. Do you see what's happening here? God is saying your strength doesn't come from yourself. It comes from another place. When he says be strong, he's not talking about him really mustering up this energy to do it. He's saying this is how you're strong. He tells him exactly where his strength comes from. God's message is you can do this. I want you to be strong, but your strength doesn't come from yourself. So Joshua's strength, first of all, comes from an unlikely source. God says, I am your strength. I will be be with you. I'm going to fight these battles. That's a hard thing for us to accept, isn't it? That somebody else will fight our battles for us. I mean, don't we, isn't that kind of the like American way is we fight our own battles? We take care of ourselves. We pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Now, I'm not advocating irresponsibility or saying that God gives us the freedom to be lazy or anything like that. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is we always as believers must rely not on our own strength, but on God's. Yeah, do everything you can do on your end, but at the end of the day, know that everything that you do, everything that you have in this life that is good, does not come from you, it comes from God. So God says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to fight your battles. 
And sometimes when we're tempted to fight our own battles, we think that's like the heroic, courageous thing to do, right? Well, I'm going to take care of myself. But have you really, ever really thought about why we think that way? At the end of the day, isn't the reason why we, we are so prideful and want to fight our own battles ourselves, isn't it because we want the credit for it? Isn't it because at the end of the day, we want to say, look at what I did? Isn't that the whole problem with this? That's why God is saying, Joshua, it's not your strength. This is my strength that's going to get you through. Joshua, you're not going to brag about yourself when this is over. People are going to brag about me. They are going to know who the one true God is. And that's why I say that the book of Joshua is a story of unlikelies, because God gave them victory, but it was in ways that nobody could have predicted. So God doesn't just give victory so that, he can, so that Joshua can hold his, health, his head high. He gives him victory so that the name of God will be lifted high. That's what the book of Joshua is really about. And so this whole thing, this victory started even before the, the first spear was thrown, before the first sword was drawn. And we see it in chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. He says this, <clears throat> Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days you were to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, if you've read your Bible very much, maybe you've read that. I've, I couldn't tell you how many times I've read that passage. And you know what? We tend to just kind of blow through it and, and gloss over it. But understand, Joshua is a brand new leader. This is the first act that he has as a leader. And what does God tell him to tell the people to do? What's the first thing that comes out of his mouth that he tells his people to do? He says, I want you to pack up your stuff. We're going to cross the Jordan River. Now, we read that and we're like, okay. Do you understand? There are not bridges. The Jordan River is not like a tiny little creek that you could just sort of hop over. We're talking about a full-fledged river. And not only that, we learned later on it was at flood stage. This is not an easy thing to do. So can you imagine being one of the Hebrews, and the first thing that your new leader says is, hey, pack up your stuff, we're going to cross this flooded river. <laughs> That's the first thing he says. And did you know that God did this more than once? He parted the Red Sea. Did you know that he parted the Jordan as well? He does it twice, not just once. So that's exactly what he does. He says, I want you to have the priest lead with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was um, symbolic of God's presence. And so the, the priest, but I, here's the best part about the story. When they were crossing the Jordan, you know what had to happen? They had to actually step in before the water stopped. Now, I don't think, I like to say they had to get their feet wet first, but I don't think that they did. I don't think they got wet. I think God dried it up like that. But the way that we read it, when you read it, is that they actually had to step in. They had to have faith that God, he didn't do it ahead of time. They had to start walking before God dried up the river. And so that's what happened, and they crossed the rivers. Talk about unlikely. There's nobody else that could have done that except for God. And so what do they do? They build a monument. They stack up stones, and Joshua says, hey, this is a reminder. Every time you see this pile of stones, you remember that God did this. Nobody else. He says, every time your kid asks you when you walk by what that stack of stones is about, you say, this is what the Lord God has done for his people. So that was the first really unlikely thing that happens. But we know that Joshua's strength comes from an unlikely source. And so when he, he says to be strong, what is God really telling him? The first thing he's telling him, if you're a note taker, write this down, is know me. The first secret, the first step to, to having the strength of God, to accessing the strength of God, is to know him, to know that he is with you. Well, how do we know him? We know him through the word. Here he says, obey my commands. 
Listen to what I say. He says, know it, meditate on it day and night. Don't let it go far from your mouth. Always be thinking about the word. He says, know what the word says and then do it. Have the courage to obey. But God called them to do some pretty crazy things. It was not an easy thing for them to obey God sometimes. And one of the first things they had to do was uh, they had to battle Jericho. Now, remember the first time when they came to the promised land, if you've heard the story before, they were scared. Why? Because there were giants there. And because the, the walls were big, and, and, and Jericho was one of those places. They had thick walls, they estimate, between at least 6 and 15 feet thick. I mean, just big walls. And so Jericho, it wasn't a very big city, but it was very well fortified. And uh, what I love about the story is that when you know about the story, Joshua sent in two spies to spy out Jericho. He learned his lesson from the whole 12 spies things. Remember what happened? It's kind of like a committee. Sometimes you get a committee together, and committees don't always make very courageous decisions. And so Joshua says, let's forget the 12 spies thing. Uh, we're going down to two. He sends two spies in, and they're hid by a woman named Rahab. And Rahab um, might not be, she was kind of an unlikely person to be a hero of this story. She was a prostitute. She lived on the, uh, the walls, in the walls of the city. And she hid these two spies. And you know why she did it? She said, I've heard about your God. She said, we're scared to death. Our city's locked up. Our hearts are melting within us because we've heard about the Lord your God, how he dried up the Red Sea. They heard about that. They knew about that. They were scared to death. And Rahab said, I know there's something about your God. And so I'm going to help you. Will you remember me when you take the city? Rahab and her family were the only ones that were spared in that whole city because she knew the one true God. She had faith that there was a, a one true God. So another unlikely thing there. So they take this city, Jericho, and it was an unlikely victory. Again, Joshua's first act as the leader is to say, uh, hey, we're going to cross a flooded river. His second act, he says, okay, this is the first battle we're going to fight, and here's our strategy. We're going to march. We're going to march around the city once every single day for six days. And on the seventh day, we're going to march around it seven days. And then we're going to blow trumpets and the walls are going to fall down. I'm guessing he was not a very popular leader at first. Okay, so, so we're going to cross a flooded river, and then we're going to march around walls and make them fall down. Now, maybe by this time the people had faith and they knew, but I, don't, I just think it's funny to think about the first things that Joshua calls them to do. And you know what? It happens just as God said. The Ark of the Covenant, they, they walked around with the Ark of the Covenant, and just like they said, when they blew the horns, the, the walls fell down and Jericho was defeated. So the first thing he says is, I want you to know me. Know that I'm with you. And you do that by knowing my word and obeying my word, even when it doesn't make sense. So that's the first thing. He says, if you want to be strong, you've got to know me. The second thing, if you want to be strong, you need to seek me. You need to know if I'm with you. And you say, well, wait a second. If the first step was know that I'm with you, why in the world would we need to ask God if he's with us? What I'm saying here is that Joshua knew that God was was for him, was with him, was guiding him, was leading him. But God also wanted him to seek, seek him out when it came to making decisions. And they actually kind of learned their lesson because with Jericho, we read this conversation that takes place between Joshua and God. But then all of a sudden, they go on to the next city called Ai, and we read nothing about Joshua talking to God. He doesn't consult God, doesn't ask him what he ought to do. There's no conversation that takes place. As a matter of fact, the only thing that we hear is that Joshua gets together with some of his uh, military uh, strategists. Is that the right word? You know what I mean. And uh, 
He says, here's what we're going to do. He said, what do you guys think we should do? And they say, you know what? AI is not a very big city. We didn't have any problem with Jericho. Let's send part of our army, and we'll defeat them no problem. And you know what happened? They sent their army, and they got their butts kicked. 36 of them died. And Joshua, he gets mad. He says, God, <laughs> like, we just defeated Jericho by marching around. How come we had problems with AI? And the problem is he didn't talk to God. And God says, Joshua, if you would have talked to me, you would have known that there was sin in your camp. See, God had told them when they were getting ready to go to battle with Jericho, he said, don't take anything from Jericho. And there was one man, Achan was his name, easy to remember. Achan stole something, and he hid it in his tent. And because he hid it in his tent, that's the reason why they weren't able to take Ai, because there was sin in the camp, because they hadn't obeyed God like he said. So 36 men lost their lives because Joshua did not consult with the Lord. He says, if you want to be strong, you got to know me, know that I'm with you, but you also got to seek me. you got to ask what I want to do, not, what, not just do whatever you think you need to do. So Joshua learned his lesson. The next time he sought the Lord and they went to battle with Ai, he held out his javelin as a symbol of, hey, God is going to have this victory, and they beat Ai. But then you think he'd learn his lesson for good. It happened later, a little bit different scenario. Uh, the Gibeonites, they knew what God's people, what their reputation was like, and they knew that they didn't stand a chance. And so they said, you know what, let's, let's try some trickery. And so here was their plan. It's a good plan. They said, let's war, uh, wear our worn out clothes and let's uh, get some dried up supplies, some dried up bread, things like that. Let's, uh, what else did they do? Oh, uh, old wineskins, things like that. Let's make it look like we've been traveling a long time. And let's go to Joshua and make a treaty with him. So they come to Joshua, they say, and Joshua says, who are you? And they said, oh, we're from a long ways away. Wasn't true. They lived right in that area. We're from a long ways away. We got kicked out of our land. And so we need a safe place to stay. Let us make a treaty with you. And Joshua says, okay. He doesn't consult the Lord. He makes a treaty with some of the people that God had called them to kick out. And so in Joshua, he swore by the name of the Lord. He had, to, he had to spare the Gibeonites. He had to live with that decision because he didn't consult the Lord. So thankfully, from then on, they learned their lesson. They defeat the king of, it, of Jerusalem. Excuse me. They killed the five Amorite kings. They defeated the southern kingdoms. And finally, they received the land that God had promised so many years before. And so the third thing he says, man, if you want to be strong, first of all, you've got you to know that I'm with you. You've got to know me. The second thing is, you've got to seek me through prayer. But then there's a the third thing. He says, I want you to obey me. I want, I want you to show me that you're with me. I've showed, shown you that I'm with you. I want you to show something that, that shows that you belong to me, that you're committed to me. Now, we talked about obedience to the law. That was something that set them apart. But then before the battle, we read this. Now, this is kind of backtracking to Joshua chapter 5. But Joshua 5, 1 through 3 says this. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan, you see, God's reputation is preceding them. Uh, the people of Israel, until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, listen to this, yikes, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel for a second time. The reason was this new generation, they hadn't been circumcised yet. The old generation was because of Abraham. Uh, this new generation has, hadn't been. He says, make flint knives, circumcise 
all the men in Israel. So Joshua made flint knives, circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath uh, Haraloth. Forgot to look that up. That's just a guess there. Okay, then on to Joshua 8, 5, 8 through 9. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the approach of Egypt from you, so that the name of this place will, is called Gilgal to this day. Joshua must have been really popular. <laughs> hey, my first act as a leader is uh, we're going to cross a flooded river. Second act, we're going to defeat this city by marching around a bunch of time and blowing some horns. And uh, third thing, all of you have to get circumcised. So I know this is a little personal here. This is a little uncomfortable, but I'm just telling you what it says. So can you imagine being in Joshua's shoes? Uh, you want me to tell him what? <laughs> but he does. And so do you understand why I'm saying this is a story of unlikelies? Now, why did God tell them to do this? Why was circumcision such a big deal to, to God? Why did he require that? Because it was something that set them apart. It was something that said, you know, you are different. It was a symbol of the covenant that God had made with them. So it's a story of unlikelies. Walls fall. Giants are defeated. Prostitutes become heroes. Kings are defeated by a nation with no king. That's the story of Joshua. And then we come to the end of Joshua. Joshua chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. A long time afterward, when the Lord God had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, Joshua was old and well advanced in years. Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and as you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. i got to be honest. I read this, and I, kinda, I shed a tear. I'm being serious here because I, I've been like pouring over this book and pouring over the, the Israelite story, really, and I've become familiar with it because I've been reading the Bible for a long time. And I know very well everything the Israelites went through, and I've really tried to put myself in, in what it must have been like, everything they had been through. And then we read these words. This is kind of what brought a tear to my eye. It says, um, the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. That touched my heart. Thought, man, after all they had been through, finally they get rest from everything they had gone through, from all their enemies. Uh, and then it goes on to say, You have seen all that the Lord your God has done. It is the Lord your God who fought for you. <laughs> Don't lift me up. It wasn't any of your doing. It was the Lord your God who did this for you. So by this time, Joshua is old. Now keep in mind, him and Caleb, they're the oldest people in all of in all the Hebrews, right? Because they're the only ones from the original generation that are still living. So Joshua, by this time, and Caleb is pretty old. He's either the oldest or second oldest in the whole nation. And he gives this incredible, amazing speech in uh, chapter 23. In verse 6, he says this. I wish I had time to share the whole thing, but I don't. But you know what he says in this speech before he dies? He says, be strong. <laughs> Same thing God had said to him years before. He said, be strong and courageous. And again, Joshua repeat those word, repeats those words to the people of Israel, the Hebrews. He says, be strong. And then 23, verse 8, he says, cling to God. Don't turn back to these other nations. Don't look back to Egypt to help you or to any other nation. Don't, don't look to make treaties or rely on anybody else. Simply cling to God. And one last passage I want to read for you. Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 through 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. 
whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. See, God, he gives us a choice. He gave the Hebrews a choice. The Hebrews saw everything the Lord had done, and God said, you need to choose. Joshua says, you can either choose to, to worship the one true God, or you can worship all these other gods. And you've seen what these other gods are capable of, nothing. They don't exist. That's why God was able to defeat every single one of these nations. So you've seen the evidence. You make your choice today who you're going to serve. Are you going to rely on your own strength and other people, or are you going to rely on me? So God commands Joshua to be strong. Joshua commands the Hebrews to be strong. And God commands us today, I think, the same thing, to be strong, not to rely on our own strength, not to, not to muster it up within ourselves, no, but to be strong the same way he told Joshua to be strong. First of all, to know him. If you want to be strong in the Lord, you got to know him. you got to know what the word of God says. Know that he's present with you. That means get into the word and find out what the Bible says for yourself. That's not an easy thing to do, is it? And maybe you've grown up in the church your whole life and you've always had good intentions and it's never happened. You've relied on everybody else to tell you what the Bible says. You've got to come to this point in your faith where you start reading the Bible for yourself. Because guys like me screw up. You've got to hold me accountable. You've got to know for yourself what it says and know the truth. That's why I love this series that we're going through, the story. My book's all the way over there. But anyways, hopefully you're familiar with it now. It's this big, anybody have it? Who's got the story? Sit and hold it up high. That's what it looks like. That one's got the dust cover. That one doesn't. So anyways, we're going through the story. And what the story is, is it's pieces of the Bible put into chapter form. It's not the entire Bible, okay? That's why you still got to read the Bible. Don't, just, don't replace the Bible with the story. You cannot do that because it's not the same thing. But anyways, uh, we're doing this series called The Story, and it's designed for you to read along with us, to, to know what the Bible says. And a lot of times we read things in the Bible that they're in there for a reason, but they're really hard to read. And this kind of cuts out some of that stuff so that you can understand what the Bible's really saying, okay? So I want to tell you that if you don't have a copy of the story, grab one. We got them for free out here on the Welcome Center. Grab one, for fa one per family. But we want you guys to be reading that. If you don't read your Bible on a regular basis, that's a great start. But don't let it stop there. And basically, it's one chapter a week. So for next week, you'd read chapter 8. Okay? But don't stop there. I mean, you need to get into the Word daily yourself. And if you don't have a Bible, we'll get you one. You come talk to me. If you don't know how to read the Bible and understand it, talk to me. Talk to somebody who might know how to help you with that. But seek out some help because I'm telling you, you can read the Bible and you can know what it says. And you need to do that. You need to know what the Bible says for yourself. So the first key to being strong in the Lord is to knowing what God says through his words. So know him through his word. Meditate on it day and night, it says. And then don't just know it, but it says do it. Don't just let it go in one ear and out the other, but do what it says. So know him. The second thing is to seek him. Ask him if he's with you when it comes to your decisions that you make. In other words, we need to be people not only of the word, but we need to be people of prayer. And I'm not talking about just praying, God, give me success with the things that I want to do. Give me success with my job or my company or my family or my fine. That's what I want to talk about. I'm talking about actually seeking the Lord, saying, God, who do you want me to be? God, what do you want me to do today? God, give me opportunities to share your name with other people. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about seeking the Lord. I'm not talking about seeking your own agenda. I'm talking about seeking the Lord's agenda. So we need to seek him. We need to pray to him and ask him, God, what do you want from me? And then we need to obey him. Show that you're with him. 
It's a little uncomfortable again, right? Because you remember what the third step for the Israelites was, right? Circumcision. And you either say, uh, well, it's getting a little personal. That's either already been done or I'm not planning on doing that again. Fortunately for you, that is a thing of the past. That is the Old Testament. We have a new covenant and we're not required. But the question is, how is it that we are marked by God? If the, if the Hebrews were marked with circumcision, showing that they belong to God, what is the mark for us that we belong to God? Well, I want you to track with me a little bit. But if you go back to the Old Testament, Abraham circumcised his family, and you know why he did? It said because he believed, because he had faith. Then in the New Testament, we're told that we need to circumcise not our flesh, but our hearts have to be circumcised. We also read that the new covenant is through the blood of Jesus. Okay, So this new covenant is through the blood of Jesus. So how are we connected with the blood of Jesus? In Romans, it tells us that baptism unites us with the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus. So if you're asking me what the New Testament symbol is, for what the New Testament replacement is for circumcision, it's baptism. Baptism is the physical act that marks us as believers. In other words, if you want to show people that you are committed to Christ, baptism is what now has replaced circumcision. Now, this is getting a little uncomfortable for some of you, I know, because you haven't been taught this. You grew up in a church where uh, maybe baptism was, was optional or maybe they practiced you know, infant baptism, something like that. And so this is new to you. But this is what the New Testament teaches us, that baptism is like the new circumcision. That's what shows that we are committed to God. It is a physical thing. We stand up and we say, I am committed to Jesus Christ. I am committed to obeying him. And we read it all over in the New Testament. John, the Baptist, before Jesus even started his ministry, he said, repent and be baptized. And Jesus was baptized as an example for us. And then one of the last things that Jesus says before he leaves this earth, you know what he says? He says, I want you to go into all the, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is that physical symbol that shows that we are committed to God. That's one of the things it does. It's also symbolic of being cleansed from sin. It's also, it also talks about uh, being united with Christ, Christ in his death, his burial, and resurrection. When we're baptized, it's like being buried in the ground and being brought up a new person. But baptism is that physical symbol that shows that we belong to God. That's one of the reasons, you know, we've had a lot of people come from different churches here. And we're, we're glad to have people here. We love all the different people that come here from different backgrounds. And I've talked to a lot of people that have had a lot of questions about infant baptism because there's a lot of churches around here that practice. That's one of the reasons we've had some people ask, why, don't, why doesn't our church do that? Well, this is why we don't do it because we believe that baptism, in order to repent, that has to be a choice of your own. That means to turn. So that's one of the reasons why we don't do that here. And that's one of the reasons why we emphasize baptism is because we believe that it, that's the physical symbol that shows that we have faith, that we believe. Now this is our, we keep talking in the story about the upper story and the lower story. The lower story is kind of down here. Us living our lives right here and right now and what the Bible says to us right now. But there's also this upper story. And that's God's story, the story of all of humanity. And the lower story is this, that we need to be strong. And I know that some of you, you need to hear those words that Joshua was able to say to the Israelites, that they finally had rest from all their enemies. Man, some of you are like, man, I need that. I need rest. I need rest from my enemies. Be strong in the Lord. Don't just muster up. I'm not talking about your gut. I'm not talking about your intestinal fortitude. I'm talking about being strong in the Lord, getting in the word. 
being a person of prayer. If you don't know how to pray, you just start by talking to God. If you're mad, tell him. If you're sad, you tell him. If you're happy, tell him what you're happy about. If you doubt, you talk to him about your doubts. Simply talking to God. And finally, to be baptized, to be united with him, to make a commitment and say, I belong to the Lord, and, and this is my symbol of it. So that's the lower story, but there's also an upper story, God's story. And that's that God gives his people a place. This goes all the way back to the garden. I want to be with you. But also we read that he doesn't tolerate sin. And that's why, you know, I was reading this story and I thought, man, this is kind of a hard thing to teach because you read over and over, God called them to utterly destroy these people. And we're like, whoa, that doesn't sound like very like, Christian-like, God-like. But then when you understand more about these cultures and you understand that they were involved in child sacrifice as part of worship, when they're involved in using sexual acts as their act of worship, you need to understand that God is saying sin and God do not mix. They had to get rid of those beliefs in order to live in this land with pure beliefs, a belief in the one true God. So he calls them to be set apart. God wants us to be set apart too. But you know what? We can't do that perfectly, can we? The, the Hebrews, they failed, didn't they, at being separate from the world? And time and time again, we failed at being the people God has called us to be. And this points to the big story. And there's some connections here I just want to tell you just real quick as we close. Do you know what the, uh, a modern translation of the name Joshua is? Jesus. Do you know that women typically aren't mentioned in Old Testament genealogies, but did you know that in Jesus' genealogy, there's five women that are mentioned? You know who one of those women who are mentioned are? You'll never guess. Rahab the prostitute <laughs> of all the people to make the cut. See the connections here. It's all part of God's story, but all the story, it points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus, and what he's saying is, I love you, I want to be with you, I will do anything, I will stop at nothing to be with you. That's the story. I want to tell you that God wants to give you victory, and don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. That I'm not talking about your definition of victory. I'm talking about his definition, definition of victory. He wants you to be victorious in the things that he's calling you to do. If you don't know the word of God, you don't know what he's calling you to do. If you're not in prayer, you don't know what he's calling you to do. you got to know him. And when you know him and you know what he wants you to do, he wants you to be victorious, not so you can hold your head high in victory, but so his name can be lifted high so that everyone will know that God is the one true God and that he sent his son Jesus for us. That's the message of the story. It all points to Jesus, God's love for us, his desire to be with us. The question is, do you want to be with him? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the story. We thank you that you teach us truth in a place where there's so many, uh, so many lies, uh, so many uh, half-truths and, and uh, perversions of the truth, Lord. We thank you that you give us a standard so that we can know what truth is. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you stop at nothing to pursue us. And Lord, I pray that we will stop at nothing to pursue you. The Lord, we will seek after you, that we will be people of prayer, that we will be people that are dedicated to your word, that we will be people that commit ourselves to you and are baptized as a symbol of our commitment to you. That's what I pray for these people here. Lord, I pray that you'll convict us. If there's any of those three things that we need to do today, if we need to be people in the word, uh, teach us how to do that. Send somebody uh, 
to, to walk alongside us that can help us with that. If we need to learn how to pray, Lord, help us to simply talk to you and pour out our hearts to you. Lord, if we need to be committed to you in baptism, convict us of that. Sometimes, Lord, we get so hard-hearted about that. But, Lord, just uh, convict us about the truth of baptism as well. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in here uh, that needs to take some sort of step towards you, that you'll convict them, that you'll lead them, that you'll guide them. I pray, Lord, that we become people that want to be part of your story, that understand that we're part of your story, and that we want to do the things that you're calling us to do. It's your name I pray. Amen.